I've taught Old Testament classes to first-year college students now for over 15 years. It's a hard sell. <laughs> Especially on a Monday morning at 8 a.m., which I'll face tomorrow. So on the first day of class, and I did this this past week, I just tell them that one of the books of the Old Testament is basically a collection of erotic poetry. And that's what it is. Hardly even mentions God at all. No laws, no old-fashioned prudery, no thou shalt nots, no fire and brimstone threats. None of that, just erotic poetry. I found out that if I tell them that, I can be sure they'll at least look at the table of contents in the Bible before they come to the next class. Yet here it is, this Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, a collection of love poems graphic enough at times to make a sailor blush. What in the world is that doing in the Bible? Best we can tell... When the ancient rabbis debated which book should be in the Hebrew Bible, they were especially vexed by this one. But they ultimately decided to count it as Scripture because they read it symbolically so that the male lover referred to God, the female lover referred to Israel or symbolized Israel, and the whole book became an extended metaphor for the beautiful covenant love between God and God's people, Israel. So that's how it made it into the Bible. Of course, since then, for some Christians, it's been a bit of an embarrassment. Some of the ancient Christian saints insisted that the book should be read only by the most chaste, the chastest, I guess, the most disciplined, the very most advanced and elite of all Christians, for they alone would be able to read this and keep their thoughts pure. Apparently we Episcopalians don't feel that way because <laughs> we just read it out loud in front of everybody. And here's why I think we can do that. The Song of Songs reminds us that at the heart of life itself is desire, a constant longing, and that longing is a gift from God. When I was growing up, my preachers weren't comfortable with this claim. They often taught that there were two kinds of love. One was good, one was bad. The, bi- the bad kind of love was eros. That's Greek word for desire, a desiring love. Uh, that's bad love. Good love, they called, it's the Greek word, was agape. That, they said, is God's love. That's good love. That's where... Um, That's a love that's unconditional. It's based not on the beauty or desirability of the one who is loved, but simply on God's character as a loving God. So in this view, in this understanding, true love is purely a matter of one's character, not not the loveliness of the one you might love. Thankfully, Song of Songs puts that idea to rest. Eros and agape, desire and unconditional regard, really are two dimensions of the one divine love, the same love that God gives us and empowers us with which to love others. Uh, If you think about it, there really is a problem if you exclude eros or desire from true love. And allow me to illustrate 
Imagine a spouse, maybe your spouse or partner, you know, whispering this in your ear. Hey, honey, I love you with agape love. <laughs> and, and you know what that means. That means I love you even though I think you're a stick in the mud. Even though your voice sounds like a frog with strep throat. Even though you smell like a chicken house in August, I love you. Because I love you with a divine love. Agape. <laughs> you see the problem? Uh, nobody wants that. I, I want my sweetheart to love me because she finds me charming and attractive. I want her to love me not just because of who she is as a loving person, and that's important too, but I want her to love me because she likes, because of who I am, and she likes me for that as well. And that part of it is Eros. That's the love that the Song of Songs endorses and sanctifies as a gift from God. The longer I live, the more impressed I am by the fact that people cannot talk about God for long without slipping into erotic language. Bernard of Clairvaux, the 12th century mystic and monk, spent 18 years preaching sermons on the Song of Songs. He only got to the beginning of the third chapter. That's as far as he got. But he spent all those years comparing mystical experience to the wedding night of a bride and a bridegroom. Not long after him, the Muslim mystic, Rumi, wrote beautiful poetry with the same kind of symbolism, the same kind of gratitude for the gift of desire. One of his poems goes like this. When I am with you, we stay up all night. When you're not here, I can't go to sleep. Praise God for these two forms of sleeplessness and especially for the difference between them. God planted a longing for life in us that is wild and playful, and God said, it is good. And God uses that longing to draw us into the inner life of God. Of course, we have to be careful when we talk about divine love in this way, and for obvious reasons. Love has many, many imposters. There are a lot of things that pass for love but are not really love at all. They are instead mutual infatuations, codependencies, compulsions, power games. And we are awfully good at deluding ourselves about which is which. Sometimes I just want to stand up and shout, they're called personal boundaries, folks. We need to observe them. <laughs> but I hope you see too that this question of longing isn't limited to romantic relationships. The love with which God has graced the universe is found in everything. It is the longing that makes the newborn baby cry. It is the longing that makes the seed sprout from the ground. That same longing that makes the earth circle the sun and the moth circle the flame. It is this same longing that draws us together around the altar rail and makes the cancer patient grateful to see a new day, even though it may bring with it more pain and weakness. 
It is also this same longing that rests at the heart of our love for family and friends. We love them unconditionally, agape love. But we also are drawn to them simply for the one-of-a-kind individuals that they are. I have to confess, and I'm glad my children are not here to hear this, but our children, each of them has a single feature that I just adore. It slays me. I look for it every time I see them. With our son, it's his one dimple on his left cheek, which we didn't discover until the day we brought him home from the hospital and our neighbor noticed it. And I have watched it every day since. With our daughter, it's a little twist in her hair. When she was born, her hair stuck out on, well, on the left side. It stuck out a little bit on the left side. And as it grew out, this lock of hair formed into this loose little corkscrew curl. And it still shows up if she lets her hair go. And I have to say, it cannot be an evil thing that I love her in part because of that little corkscrew curl. And it cannot be an evil thing that I am drawn to my son in part because of that cute little dimple. This is just how we love people. And this, I think, is how God wants us to love one another, wholeheartedly, in all their beauty, for all the things that we find lovable in those we love. For that is how God loves us. Listen once more to the good news in these words. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one. Come away with me. Amen.